0: This is the Nordic Asia Podcast.
1: Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Satoko Naito, and I am a docent at the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Turku in Finland. Today's topic is Creativity and Engagement in Urban Spaces of East Asia, And it's my delight to welcome Dr. Mina Valiaka, who is an art historian focusing on urban creativity and environmental art in East and Southeast Asia. Dr. Valiaka is a senior lecturer of art history at the University of Helsinki, currently on leave as a research fellow with the Academy of Finland. She also holds the title of docent at both the universities of Helsinki and Turku, and has held numerous fellowships most recently at the Asia Research Institute. She's also prolific and has published widely with papers in numerous top journals. Thanks so much for joining us today, Mina.
0: Thank you very much for having me, Satoko.
1: Uh, Your research takes a very interdisciplinary approach and has focused on urban areas like Hong Kong and Seoul and involves extensive on-site fieldwork. Right now, of course, because of the pandemic, you haven't been able to conduct your research as usual.
0: Can you... Briefly discuss
1: what you would ordinarily do.
0: So, actually, at the moment, I was supposed to be in Hong Kong for this autumn yeah. to conduct the new research on environmental art. So, I really prefer doing my own fieldwork and engaging with the artists and protagonists by myself so that I can learn as much as possible directly from them. Mm. So, if things would go as I planned, I would indeed be in Hong Kong, meeting as many people involved in environmental art at the moment as possible, visiting their home archives, talking throughout the possible new future plans, and trying to find as much materials as possible about environmental art in Hong Kong since the about the late 80s.
1: Okay, and I understand you work on quite understudied issues and also some politically sensitive matters. So I can only imagine that because you're dealing with these potentially very sensitive issues, you have to take extra care in approaching your research.
0: Yes, yes, indeed. So as a researcher, I do feel that one of the primary principles is to avoid capitalizing on other people's work mm. and experiences and the possible challenges they are facing in their own societies. So hence I am personally very concerned about ethics and I explain very carefully to my possible participants of the research what are my purposes and aims in my study and I make my own profile openly available online and it's easily for anyone to check that what I'm doing and who I am. And then I really, I keep asking permissions on every single stage of my work, whether I can join them, whether I can document the possible event or the discussions. If I may or may not publish something, I'm very considerate towards their work and how they feel about being published and discussed in an an academic publication, which might frame their work in a very unexpected way. So, as I said, I I collaborate as much as possible, and and whenever feasible, the people involved in my studies, um, they do get a chance to cross-check what I'm writing, and they can then revise and correct and even provide new information or withdraw what they've said, because I think that's the, the least I can do is to actually respect their voice and their intentions and allow them to actually see what is going on and what is to be published.
1: I see. I I think the sort of sensitivity that you have is really evident in your papers. Case in point, one of your recent papers that I read covered the 2014 umbrella protests in Hong Kong. And the way you discuss the participants, and I think you call them protagonists, the various citizens who engaged in the protests through art and creativity, the way you frame their subjectivity, I think, makes it very clear that you value their agency.
0: I'm I'm very happy to hear if that comes through from the text, because I also hope to develop some kind of reciprocity in my work. But of course, that's perhaps the biggest challenge I have, because what I'm writing as an academic paper doesn't actually really change the world. So what else could I give to these people so that it's not just me exploiting their work, but they could actually get something back from me. So that kind of reciprocity is something I hope to work also in future.
1: I think this sort of approach and is very informative for young scholars, especially, and maybe experienced scholars as well, who are engaging in these sorts of on-site work. I just mentioned the protests in Hong Kong, of course, you deal with in at least one of your recent papers, but there's, a, I understand that there's extensive literature on the 2014 protests. And of course, that was one precursor to the ongoing protests in Hong Kong now. So there's so much material out there. So maybe for us, we could focus on one concept that you introduce, which I understand it to be, socially engaged creativity. And I thought that this was a very important concept that you raise, especially as being distinct from socially engaged art. Can you explain a little more about this phrase and what you hope to emphasize by using it?
0: Yes, so I I try to be brief, because in art studies, there's been overwhelming interest to socially engaged art for at least 20, 30 years already, Uh, even a little bit earlier with uh, certain practices. But at the moment, it seems, in a way, slightly provocatively said that everything needs to be socially engaged art. If it's not socially engaged art, then it's not valued. And this kind of push towards framing everything as art was something that I personally, as an art historian, I've found a little bit too simplified. And especially like the Umbrella Movement became extremely famous for these artistic and creative and aesthetic practices that just took over the whole city. I was also very much surprised I was able to be there for a while in person. And I met a lot of people, elderly generation, uh, academics, just tiny kids with their patterns, doing anything and everything on the street. They've never done it before, but now they were on the street. They were using the chalks to write on the highway or whatever they could imagine. And of course, that's quite fascinating. And for a lot of people, I totally understand that for a lot of people, that seems as an art and it can be interpreted as an art. Of course it can. But when I was there and when I was able to speak with people, I came to understand that majority of the agency is based on these very nuanced self-identifications. Even an artist, perhaps, was doing something as a citizen. So not claiming to be doing something as an artist, but as a citizen. So that kind of provoked me to think that instead of just speaking about socially engaged art, in tandem with this concept, as a continuity, we could think that the kind of other end of this phenomenon could be seen as socially engaged creativity. I think I'm not alone saying when... When I think that socially engaged art is just, it's not nuanced enough to explain what is actually now happening around us. How different people from very varied professional backgrounds are actually engaging with a civil society formation through art and creativity.
1: So recently, of course, there are protests worldwide, Hong Kong, obviously, Belarus and all over the U.S., and especially with the Black Lives Movement, I've seen a lot of what I've read, what I've seen labeled as protest art, and they could be large murals of George Floyd or Breonna Taylor and surrounded by beautiful flowers or, or whatnot, But and I've seen these kind of collected and disseminated as various sorts of art pieces that symbolize the Black Lives Matter movement. But then in your paper, Please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you were distinguishing socially engaged creativity and maybe also socially engaged art from occupation art and protest art. Can you explain a bit more
0: about that? I fully understand that this might seem quite overlapping and a vague approach. So from art studies perspective, there has been a keen interest to follow up the involvement of art in relation to demonstrations. So if we look at the images from the 1960s, for example, we see people carrying signs, but that's about it. There is music and there are kind of signs disseminating the message. But gradually, especially during the 21st century, uh, a little bit before that, demonstrations have become more and more aestheticized and more and more artistic and creative practices are kind of included into these demonstrations because it gains attention from the media. There are beautiful examples already from the 1990s around the world. Mm -hmm. So this kind of like interrelation with art and creativity in demonstrations Mm -hmm. is usually kind of understood as a protest art, because there is a social movement which uses art to promote the message. This is the simplified explanation. Then, of course, when we had occupy wall street for example Mm -hmm. so then of course we come up with a new concept which is closely related to this occupation Mm -hmm. what are the artistic strategies that you actually occupy the space so the socially engaged art in itself it's a very broad umbrella concept and it is not limited to demonstrations and occupations in itself but it kind of now includes everything and anything I see. So with socially engaged creativity, I also try to bring attention to, for example, urban knitting, mm. or different kind of reflections, or even like urban gardening, which is which are kind of done in order to improve the social cohesion and like the urban environment, and they are also made also inside and outside of the social movements. So this is just another perspective I wish to examine, these highly interrelated manifestations. And of course, quite a few of them could be labeled in several different ways, but it's just the matter of changing the perspective. What new can we learn about these processes? I'm more interested about the process than the outcome perhaps.
1: I'm glad you brought up urban knitting. This sort of urban hacking, I think, is fascinating. First, because it's now so widespread. So I see it here in Turku once in a while as well. But you talked about the aestheticization of protests, bringing more attention to the cause. And the kind of aestheticization that urban knitting accomplishes. Maybe there are other causes that the artist, the the hacker, intends to convey. But on a very basic level, it brings attention to the space itself, of the urban environment itself maybe about ownership, maybe about it not being solely utilitarian and the urban space having potential to be beautiful or whimsical. So it's, it's subjective, of course, but I often find the urban knitting artifacts to be kind of pleasant surprise. And I think part of the appeal, at least for me, is that regardless of any political intention behind it, people, I think, just sort of smile when they see it. Kids especially, of course. And that's always nice, especially when the days get a bit dark.
0: Yes. So one of the reasons I was actually writing about urban knitting is that it is usually relatively apolitical. So the knitted works in the urban space don't necessarily have a political message per se. Mm-hmm. They can be, for example, celebrating Halloween. Right. Right. So this kind of commitment and just simple pleasure to try to engage with the urban environment that might bring joy to someone else, I find it very valuable in itself, regardless of whether we call it art or not. So I've heard even plans from a colleague that there is one famous bridge in Ireland where people usually, especially younger generation, they, do, they commit suicides. So they are planning to perhaps use urban knitting on that bridge. Try to see if that might be kind of like a feeble, but a kind of reminder that there are still perhaps beautiful and joyful things in in the life. Please reconsider if you want to jump from this bridge. So whether this would ever work, whether that would ever prevent any suicide, that's completely impossible for us to know in advance. So bringing joy to people is also valuable.
1: Definitely. That's a beautiful sentiment and intention about that bridge. And you said that, you know, it can perhaps, hopefully it reminds that there is beauty, as you said, in life, but also that there are other people who are creating this beauty and taking the time to, of course, knit and then to attach the various knittings onto the bridge. So I think you've talked about this kind of potential for forging or making social cohesion more apparent in these urban spaces. And that seems like a really great example of that, of reminding people that there are others out there who are creating and who are living. And hopefully that, very hopefully, that can change some people's minds. That That's beautiful.
0: Thank you for mm. telling us. And if I may add, so even if I speak about urban knitting as urban hacking, which for some might be a slightly controversial approach, but I just wanted to also remind us that urban hacking is not necessarily destructive, it can be constructive. So that's why I specifically chose those couple of example, digital hacking and urban knitting, to remind us that this kind of civil disobediency can also perhaps be positive. It's not always antagonistic.
1: I see, that's a, that's a really good point. Yes, that it's also about, it's not necessarily civil disobedience, but also civil engagement. Yeah, that's, that's a really great point. Uh, we started by discussing how you've previously relied on research conducted on-site yourself, interviewing people, experiencing or witnessing the creative displays. Uh, how, how have things been for you in these last few months in terms of research? Of course, as you said, you, you are
0: supposed to be in Hong Kong. It is indeed quite challenging because, um, of course, I'm I'm searching as much as I can online on different kind of social platforms, keeping in touch with a lot of people I know previously, asking what's going on, are you planning something new? And of course, I'm, I'm going through the existing academic literature and especially lucky that I have managed to find a couple of excellent research assistants. So at least they can do a bit of basic research, find the possible interviewees, also organize some like Zoom interviews that I can have these specific artists and what they've been doing. And at some occasions, I will probably ask them to, you know, have me in a video interview and go through the exhibition so at least I can see the exhibition although I can't be there in person of course it it doesn't really match with that experience to be there on person and be Mm. sensitive of all that like body language that you get Mm. all that information which is not set when you do an interview
1: Mm. I know you've usually spent long periods of time on the ground and I imagine you need to cultivate relationships with artists and activists, uh, gauge the changing and developing situations, so it must, be, it must be really difficult
0: to try to shift all of that online. Hopefully we will find a way to handle this situation so that we can again, as researchers, go back to field work. Of course, being considerate of all the possible participants and all our own families. So even if already in my previous studies and research projects, I've been utterly concerned about the ethics. So I I just would like to highlight that these intricate ethical questions are ever more pertinent to all of us because we are facing these daily issues and um, currently heightening Geopolitical tensions mm. around the world, just to mention France and what kind of impact it is causing even to curators in Indonesia funded by a French cultural centre. So there are a lot of different kind of tendencies and parameters that we just have to be more and more aware and considerate so that, of course, there are always unexpected results and impacts but at least we can try to be aware that the research that we do may have both positive and negative impact.
1: Yeah those are really thoughtful words and they are pertinent to so many of us academia and elsewhere. I think it only highlights how significant this kind of research is and you're right that we have to be mindful of ourselves for ourselves, our students, but most important, the protagonists, the activists, the engaged civilians on the ground. I really look forward to your work in the future, and and I hope you can return to conduct your research in a way that's fruitful and safe for everyone soon.
0: Thank you very much indeed. It's been a great pleasure to talk with you, and I simply hope that I might inspire, especially the younger researchers and the students, just to be true to themselves and continue doing what they think is valuable and of course we should every once in a while to focus more on disseminating the information than just be producing news so that's why I'm, I'm utterly happy to be invited for this podcast
1: thank you so much that's really those are really inspiring words and i'm sure it will help many young scholars and not so young scholars like myself as well so thank you again to Dr. Mina Vallyaka. It's really been a pleasure. And to our listeners, thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia.
0: You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.